Okay, great. Now, um, I have a question for you. I would like to, I'm going to try to save some time at the end to take some questions from you. But also, because it is seminar, workshop, um, not uh, preaching per se, if you have a question, even as I'm going through some of this, raise your hand. Uh, I'll interact with you, and we can go from there, okay? And I may need someone that um, can kind of be my voice. If someone has a question, repeat that question for us, because I don't think we have any uh, handheld mics. Uh, here's a question for you. So why are you attending this workshop? There's some excellent things you can attend, and I know you, you may attend one, but you'll listen to the rest. But so why are you attending? What are your expectations? What are you hoping to learn? So let me maybe hear from three of you to say, I'm hoping to learn what? Fill in the blank. What would that blank be? What would you say? Yes, right here. How to grow in holiness. How to grow in holiness. Okay, that would be a good answer. Do we all agree with that? That's a good answer. Um, what else are you hoping to achieve? What, what would you hope to learn? Maybe have answered. What else might be something that you can say? Anyone? Okay, I see hand. Obedience, um, that we need to grow in our obedience to the Lord because that's an expression um, of holiness as well, our piety. And anything else? Yes, right here. So turn off the things of the world that we, if we're to be honest, we can at times, we can listen to them still. Uh, We shouldn't do it with a great affection, but nonetheless we do. And how do we hear from the Lord? And the way we hear from the Lord is obviously through his word, the principles that are in his word. I saw another hand. I'll take one more right here. Yeah, a better understanding of the things that God loves and hates. Uh, That should be our passion, that we should love what he loves and we should hate what he hates. Absolutely, that is true. So I'm going to move ahead. The PowerPoint hopefully will catch up to us later. And let me communicate this, that we can entitle this um, session Pursuing Personal Piety and we can say parentheses holiness. So we could say pursuing um, holiness, parentheses piety. And I'm going to use the word piety throughout, but we are going to define it. And we start with the idea, what is a definition of piety? What is a definition of piety? And I would say that the term is more less acceptable in America than in Europe. Uh, there are words that would say pious or he's a pietist can be used of people, but we don't use them as much in America because they carry this negative connotation of at times even hypocrisy or moralism. Um, But pietism or piety should not have those connotations. Uh, It's a misnomer. There have been surely movements of pietists uh, in times past. Well, it was simply moralism. Uh, You can even call it escapism, simply to move away from the world and not being engaged in the world. Uh, We are to be untainted by the world. We know that. We're not to be influenced by the world. We understand that. Uh, But we must be in the world, but not what? Of the world. And this is what we're striving for if we're going to be pious people. Um, In the book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, Our Theology, Piety, and Practice, Uh, Dale Brown made this statement. He said, Pietism identifies five central motifs. 
Number one, a turn to the practical. Number two, a a pietist reading of Scripture, or he even calls it a a primitive reading of Scripture, uh, which is described as, some would say, as biblicism. And I'll go back to each one of those. Number three, an emphasis on sanctification and ethics. Number four, an emphasis on religious experience. And number five, acts of mercy. So number one, uh, practical. That is, I need to live out this Christian life. How do I do it in a very practical way? Then number two, when it comes to the reading of Scripture, a primitive reading of Scripture, and what Dale Brown is communicating there, uh, we must be able to read God's Word and just read it for the joy of discovery. That's a primitive reading of Scripture. Myself, one other thing that I do is... um, fortunate to be on the faculty at the seminary and to teach at the seminary, and that's going to gear up come August 8th. We start early uh, this year, and despite, you know, having my degrees from the seminary, uh, I still love to simply open the Word of God and just read it, because you may say um, someone like myself teaching it at a certain level, we can say, am I always investigating it? I'm always looking for uh, what is that word meaning? What is that syntax? What is that background? What is that culture? And at times I do that, especially when I need to teach it. But there are other times I just read it and I just bask in it. My eyes right now, Psalm 113. Why don't you turn there? And Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God? He is enthroned on high. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are on earth and in the heavens. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He turns the barren woman about the barren woman abide in the house. He makes the barren woman abide in the the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. So just read it and you think about it and you meditate on it. Uh, This praising of Yahweh. The servants of God are called to do it. His name forth forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, it is to be praised. His glory is in the heavens. He's enthroned on high. And notice what it says in verse 5. He humbles himself to even take note of the things that are in heaven and on the earth. And, And notice what it says that are in heaven and in the earth. So, it gives us a picture even of God that he transcends even heaven itself. Um, He is still humbling himself to look into what he has created. And he has surely humbled himself in the most extreme way. Uh, The apex of this humility is that he would come, he would incarnate himself, and that he would die for sinners. This is humility. And so we just read the scripture for the joy of it and reflect on it and think about it. And then he talked about an emphasis on sanctification and ethics. How are we behaving? Are we molding ourselves? Are we striving to be more like Christ? 
and a religious experience. Now, this is where sometimes uh, with certain pietist movements, they had a great deal of emphasis on experience, and that experience became an authority. But we should not divorce ourselves from experience. Uh, we tend to, uh, in Christianity, uh, there tends to be a pendulum swing. And we see one movement that has gone a certain direction, and we avoid it in an absolute sense. Now, there's certain movements that should surely be avoided. Uh, there are doctrinal deviations, and we should avoid them. That's obvious. Say, for instance, uh, we think about the prosperity perversion. Uh, it's a disgusting movement. It really is. I stopped calling it the prosperity gospel. I just don't like the word gospel along with the prosperity. I just don't. But we all understand it, do we not? Uh, we avoid it, but yet at the same time, um, some will say, and this is unfortunate, because someone that's in that movement may say, well, the Lord stirred in my heart. And all of a sudden, we don't want to say what? The Lord stirred in my heart. Or they talk about power, and then we avoid the word power. How can you avoid the word power? If you're going to avoid the word power, you have to avoid the Bible. Even Paul talks about we do things by the strength of the working of his might. You cannot live the Christian life without power, but they have perverted the use of the word. And there are any number of terms that they pervert. And we sometimes swing the other way when we shouldn't, as opposed to denouncing what they say and giving people a biblical definition and understanding of their perversions. And so religious experience isn't bad, Because when we came to faith in Christ, most of us, when we first came to faith in Christ, something stirred in us. That was an experience. When we seek the Lord and God answers our prayers, something stirs in us. That's a part of a religious experience. Uh, We go and we hear genuine preaching and something stimulates in our mind. And maybe a tear comes from our, our eyes because we say, oh, the Lord is ministering to me right now. How did that preacher know that I need to hear that? Because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. We experience communion and we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his burial. And there's something sweet about uh, the communion experience. So experience isn't bad as long as that experience is sourced in truth and obviously biblical truth. And it stimulates, it starts with the mind. That is, um, we hear good music. Uh, we hear music that's worshipful. It starts with the mind, and then the emotions can be involved in that as well. Uh, that's thoroughly biblical. We can, it's unavoidable, really, in the psalmist to see that he worshiped the Lord with joy and happiness. Um, the people of God is at times they would dance and lift their hands uh, to the Lord. Uh, but it, it started with the mind. And that's why it's so important that what we hear, and I'll put it this way, is lyrically mature. Lyrically mature. If it's lyrically mature, then it can stimulate the mind, and then the emotions will follow. Now, I remember my former church, um, there was one song that we used to sing, and um, I, I told them, I said, never, ever sing that song again. Just never singing again. And it was, it just was lyrically pretty immature. And it says, don't sing that again. But there are also some songs that lyrically, and I'll just tell you this because we want to be open about these things, that were lyrically mature, but boy, the musical arrangement was, oh my, I want to fall asleep. 
Uh, this is a death march. Um, friends, this is, please, give, let's get some rearrangement of those wonderful lyrics because right now I'm, I'm struggling. And at times I would be struggling as the pastor and I'm considering myself fairly mature and I'm thinking, what are some of the congregants struggling with right now? So religious experience isn't bad. And then he says acts of mercy. And then we show that we're a pious person in how we treat individuals. And um, just to give you an illustration, it just happened last night. We were delayed in our flight getting back here, and my wife was with, with me. And we tend to, uh, when we fly, if we have a seat arrangement that's a three, I'll always take the aisle. She would take the window. And sometimes we're hoping that it will remain open, but that doesn't happen uh, too often. Someone comes, and we have a, a policy. If it's a woman, she'll witness. If it's a guy, I'll witness to them. And so on the flight over, um, my wife shared the gospel with this uh, lady and gave her some tracts. And, and then on the return, there was a young man that sat next to me, and I saw him about to get his earbuds out. So I said, I better strike now. <laughs> because we know what happens on the planes. What do we all, and I do the same thing. I have my noise-canceling headphones, and I put them on, and I put my head down, and I start my work. So I thought, he's about to put his earbuds in, so let me start the conversation. And we ended up having, I mean, we talked because the flight was delayed. We couldn't go anywhere. Uh, we talked for quite a while right there and sharing the gospel with him. And then he, I thought, okay, he's just going to put his earbuds in now. He said, well, you know, I have some questions for you. Then he had about six questions for me, you know, about manuscript evidence and translations. I think this is wonderful. I'm loving every moment of this. And I'm sharing these things with him. And it was a great conversation that I had with him. Sharing the gospel is the greatest act of kindness. That is the greatest act of mercy. You cannot possibly say that you're growing in holiness or piety and you're not a person that shares the gospel with dying souls. It's not possible. And we, and we finally got on another flight and, and I saw this lady get on the flight and the flight attendants were helping her and she was very frail and they helped her get her seat and she, she sat down, and I thought, boy, I, hope, I wonder who's with her, you know, to help her where she needs to go to the next destination. Well, lo and behold, Providence would have it. We would be those people. So I get a text message from my wife saying, um, there's a lady that's sat next to me that's pretty frail. She needs to get to downtown L.A. to her hotel. Can we take her there? And I thought, okay, <laughs> all right, uh, let's do it. And so we did, and, and she, the woman was like, well, I've never done this before, taking a ride from a stranger. And so my son drove my car. We, we loaded her bags in, took her to near kind of a, off of Olympic and helped her get to the courtyard there and, and got her bags off. And, and I was thinking, I, initially, I, was, I really want to get some sleep. We Three delays and all of these things. And my wife said to me, uh, you're, you're storing up treasures in heaven, and the Lord is going to give you sweet sleep tonight, although you're teaching early in the morning. And that's what happened. I mean, I, I was out, and I'm a light sleeper. You can ask me, I'm a light sleeper. If I hear a bird chirping, it's like, what's happening out there? <laughs> but I was out for the count last night, and I said the Lord honored it. Yeah, practical, practical things that you must do for people. Pietism. He also says this, pietism has been identified negatively as emotionalism, mysticism, rationalism, subjectivism, 
asceticism, quietism, synergism, moralism, legalism, and separatism, individualism, and otherworldliness. I just want to identify a couple of quietism. And sort of the quietism movement, at times it was distorted because a person would have this sense and they're just quiet before the Lord. They're not engaged in conversation even. That's an extreme level of it. Are, are there moments when we should be quiet before the Lord? Absolutely we should be. We need to be still before the Lord um, in emotionalism because then it's attached to an emotional experience. If I have the emotional experience, then that means my what I'm thinking is legitimate, but that's not true. Everyone in this room, you have been led astray by your emotions. Have you not? I'll answer the question for you. Yes, you have. Okay? You have been led astray by your emotions. But again, with thumbs up, this is wonderful, right? Um, But emotions are not bad, necessarily. Do you not feel emotions for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're married, do you not have some emotion for your spouse, for your children? Do you not have some emotions for your neighbors? When you hear tragedy... Even if it's someone you don't know, don't you have some emotional response to that? Absolutely you do. And God has created that. He's put that in us. And what happens in society is, because society is not subjecting their emotions to the authority of the word of God, those emotions can lead you astray. And even for the believer, when you're not subjecting your emotions to the word of God, you will be led astray. Okay. Let's, um, can you move to the next slide? Next one. Excellent. One more. And that's where we are. And so this other worldliness, the next slide tells us this, just the word pietus. And what does it communicate? The definition of it is in the Latin word is pietas. So having a filial affection for the family of God. So if you're a pious person, you love God's people. Uh, the German word from means either godly and devout, or gentle, harmless, simple. And the English carries this idea of pity and even compassion. So we have, we have a filial affection. We have a love for God's people. Um, godly, devout, serious, but yet gentle, harmless, simple. And simple would carry the idea that <clears throat> I can live a simple life. And that's what some extremes in the pietist movement were. Even some that were in the quietist movement, they wanted to remove themselves from society and say, we're more pious. And so you create communities. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with the community. But when you do it to escape the world around you, then it's wrong. It is indeed wrong. And the New Testament equivalent... um, is this sense in which we can say is godliness. We grow in godliness. Um, Let's skip the next slide and go to New Testament usage. You'll see some scriptures. Okay? Yeah, we can go to the next one. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Let's just go in our Bibles and look at these, okay? 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says what? He says, I have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for 
the life to come. So right away, the implication of godliness here is that it does require discipline. You must make decisions to be godly. And he says that it's profitable not only for this life, the promise to come. That is, I think what Paul is getting at here is that if one walks in godliness in this life, you are storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. Uh, You're becoming closer to your final reward. But also in this life, because we're called to be lights in the world. And we might even say that when we strive for personal holiness or piety, godliness, we're brightening our lights. We're brightening our lights in this life. Look at 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. So ultimately what he's saying here, some are teaching things, but their doctrine doesn't move them towards godliness. Uh, And I would say, I think the prosperity perversion is one example of that. They have a doctrine But its objective is not godliness. Its objective is being comfortable in this life. And we're saying that if you grow in godliness, that increases your light. And they might say then, if you grow in their form of what they say is godliness, it increases your light because you have these things. And in one sense, what you're attempting to do is to make the world jealous of you. You're you're attempting to say to the world, look at all the things that I have. I have them because my heavenly father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And indeed he does, right? But some of the brightest lights that I've ever seen are some people that have little or nothing. Now, I've also known people who have great means who are bright lights as well. The common factor, the common denominator is their relationship to the living God. I mean, I've met pastors in places where, and we're working on it now, even in our ministry, to get them a pastor's library. You go to their place, and you look at their library, and they have their 15 books, and that's it. And they're so proud of them. You know, look what I have. And if we're to stop for one moment, and this is okay that we have the things that we have as long as we're using them. And most of us probably, some of us may even have 15 translations. I know I do. I mean, hardbound. And I can't even, I don't even know how many I have electronically. But a bright light. Then I've seen people that have great means, but they're a bright light because you know that if all of these things were to fly away, if you will, It's like the scripture tells us, do not weary yourself to gain wealth because it takes up wings like an eagle and it flies away. That they would still be the same people. 1 Timothy 6, 5 and 6. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by, what's the key word? Contentment. So some that... Um, either false teachers or simply poor teachers were saying, yes, I'll grow in godliness because it may attract people to me, but they do it out of a religious obligation, not because of an engaging relationship with with the Lord. And they think it's a gain, but it's not what Paul is communicating here. The gain, yes, is there if you're content. Because there are people who have a list of things that they avoid. And let me pause for a moment and make this statement. 
Sometimes we think about piety or godliness or holiness, and the first thing we think about is avoidance. That's not true. The first thing you should think about when it comes to holiness and piety and godliness is what am I striving to be, the positive. I have a direction, and that is what I'm pursuing. Often people think first, here are the things that I don't do. And their churches and some that I'm very familiar with. And if they, you look at their doctrinal statement or about their, their emphases in their church, they think often about what they don't do. Here are the things that we avoid. That's not necessarily godliness because often some of those people, and I've known them over the years, they're not content. You can buffet your body to avoid any number of things. But inside, if you're forever thinking, I wish I could. I wish I could. I wish I could. I wish I could. It's a problem. You're not content. And that's not godliness. That's not personal holiness. It's not true piety. Notice verse 11 of chapter 6. And this gets us to the thought of what I'm talking about. It's a striving towards something. 1 Timothy 6, 11, But flee from youthful lusts, or flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. See, the key word here is pursuit. I want to be known as a person that's pursuing something. Yes, you flee, but in that fleeing, you must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And it is simple when we think about it, right? Um, If I am pursuing after a person, I'm obviously leaving something behind. If I'm pursuing after Christ, I'm leaving something behind. Simply put, when a person is in a race, and the scripture often refers to our um, journey as a walk and even as a race, um, at the starting blocks when I... The gun goes off, I'm pursuing something, and simply put, what am I leaving behind? The starting blocks. I leave the starting blocks behind. And if you're running properly a race, and especially if it's a tight race, um, what is one, uh, we'll call it principle, of uh, good racing, running when you're in a tight race? What's the one thing that you should not do? Look to the sides or look back, right? You don't look to the sides. You don't look to the sides. Because your goal is right in front of you. And if I remember correctly, it had to be 2004. 2004 was Athens. You know, 2004 Athens Games. Uh, the 100-meter dash, uh, first, second, third, um, actually was decided by one hundredth of a second each. One hundredth of a second. I mean, think about that. So can you imagine if it's decided by one hundredth of a second when you're coming to that finish line? You, and if you find that picture, 2004, 100-meter finals, uh, Athens, you will not see any of them doing this or this. All of them are like that, looking straight ahead. And so by... Just that word picture for you, if you will. Yes, personal holiness, godliness, piety is a striving towards something. And by the natural result, we avoid other things. Now, I'm not saying that you don't calculate what should you avoid, how might you avoid it. But if you first think about striving, some of it would take care of itself. 
First, Second Peter 1, 6 and 7. Because he says, in our self-control, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. So the outpouring of piety then is right relationships with those in the body of Christ. The outpouring of my godliness is love. Second Peter 3.11. We ought to conduct ourselves in holy conduct and godliness. Acts 3.12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? So why do you gaze at us if by our own power, our piety, we made him walk? It wasn't our godliness. We were infused by the power of God to do this miracle before you today. So now, when we think about a definition of piety, our godliness, our holiness, the core of piety is what Brown referred to is, I believe, otherworldliness. Now he, I quoted him in the context that he saw it as perhaps negative, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, we are people whose affections and our passions and our purposes are now reoriented, are they not? Our affections, obviously for God, are reoriented, whereas before we were a hater of God. Our passion for the things of the world is now reoriented. Now we have a passion for the things of God. Our purpose in life is now reoriented. Now we don't have a purpose to create our own life and our own kingdom and our own future. It is what would be your will, God. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Everything has changed. So it's not some reclusive movement where we go away and hide. And we're going to keep ourselves unstained from the world. That's not how you keep yourself unstained from the world. Because if you're still wanting the world, you can move a thousand miles away from the most horrendous city in the world. I mean, there are parts of Los Angeles that are horrible. And you can move where you want. You can go to the, you know, the upward mountains of Montana all you want. And you can escape all the way to northern Alberta if you want. But if you're in your heart, you're still not desiring God, that's not godliness or piety or holiness. I mean, the world is a madhouse, is it not? We all agree with that. You can say that. Do you agree with me? Yeah, absolutely. And you say to yourself, at times you just want to get away from it all. Absolutely you do. But God has called us to be here for a purpose. Um, so you've heard the, and it really is a caricature. You've heard it said before, well, that person's so heavily minded that there are no earthly good. Have you ever heard that before? Ah, ah, horrible, horrible statement. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the extreme view of what would be the quietest movement. No, we are heavenly minded because the scripture tells us our citizenship is not here. Uh, We're going to look later on in Colossians 3. We look above. We do look above. But as we look above, we realize my purpose is here on this earth. And what did Paul say? Paul says, you know, I would just as soon if it were up to me, it is so much better to be with Christ. But for your sake, it is necessary that I remain He was surely a man that was heavenly minded, but he realized heaven kept reminding him of his purpose on this earth. Question, quick quiz. I have a quick quiz for you. You said, wait a minute, you're taking quizzes. How did that happen? 
uh, a quick quiz for you. How long will we be in heaven? Someone tell me. Are you sure about that? How long is eternity? Well, you have to take out the word long, do you not? It has no time frame. None whatsoever. We cannot fully grasp it. And that's why at times I've been in my studies recently in my group, I've been saying we should, certain language we shouldn't even use anymore. And I know we do it because the finite mind has its limitations. And we say things like, well, that happened in eternity past. Nope, stop. Because the moment you say eternity past, you put a time stamp on eternity. There is no such thing. It happened. And even when we say in eternity, what does that even mean? There's no time stamp to eternity. So when we all are transferred, when we cross the Jordan, if you will, and we're in eternity, there's no time stamp whatsoever. A beautiful song, and even when we sing, and we've been there how many years? 10,000 years. We've only just begun. And there's some truth to that. But even then, no, there are no years anymore. You say, okay, what's your point, Hargrove? We have an eternity with the Lord. In eternity. And so what sacrifices we make here are, are nothing. Whatsoever. Cannot be compared. Because of what awaits us. So heavenly minded so that we can do the work of the Lord here on this earth. On this earth. Uh, next slide for us. And. Um, okay. There we go. Piety. Godliness. The Christian life manifests internally, privately, congregationally, and publicly. That's important that we grasp that. Internally, privately, congregationally, and publicly. What's the point of this distinction? Because it is an internal work of the Lord. God has made us holy people. We are saints of the Lord. Uh, We have a divine nature in us. And we must stimulate that internally. And that's why the reading of God's word, the scripture is clear, is it not? It says what? Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. So we grow um, internally. And then privately means you must have time with the living God yourself. We are gathered right now congregationally. And that's good. You will sing. We will sing together congregationally. And it's a wonderful thing to hear the people of God singing out his praises together. But privately, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Do you have your own worship time, if you will? It may be in your car. You put on your favorite track. You're listening to scripture. You're hearing some preaching. Privately, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? It's unfortunate where people say, well, yes, um, they think that somehow their life can really grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by limiting it to a once-in-a-week experience here. Is this a great experience? It is. I, I love it every time I can come here and hear the people of God, and I, I love hearing them sing, and I love seeing their interaction, and even the conversations I was overhearing as you were coming in here. That's all a wonderful thing. But if I'm not engaged with God privately, I'm not possibly growing in personal holiness. Remember, it's personal holiness, not congregational holiness. And then publicly. Why is it important publicly? Why does it have to manifest itself? People must see you. They must see you. 
Remember Paul to Timothy, and Paul to Timothy was what? Um, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but be an example. And we see throughout Scripture, example, example, example. That's why some of the pietive movements were wrong, because they wanted to hide themselves from the world and the people that needed to see it. There has been a loss of piety, a loss of it. And that's evident around us. We see it. Um, I'm going to, how about the need for piety? And I'm going to take some questions at the end. We can go to the next one. We talked about the distinction. The loss of piety is evident. What about the need for piety? Yep. There's some alarming statistics that are, we're facing, we see it all the time. Um, marriages shatter in the church at nearly the same rate as the world. Financial gain becomes the determiner of spiritual success. That is, look, I have gained financially. Look at the things that I have. This is an evidence that I'm walking with the Lord, which is atrocious. It should make your stomach turn. And there seems to be contradictions at times among leaders um, who live um, lifestyles that are contradictory. We were just starting to, uh, someone told us about it, it was, a, I think it's a five-part um, piece on Hillsong. Um, I think Hillsong Exposed, something like that it's called, a look at the mega church. Um, horrible. And I, at times I have to be careful of watching things like that uh, because I, you start to become angry and I think at times it's a correct anger, and especially oh, this young girl taken advantage of, and there she is in another church, and she's giving an interview, and she just has a stop for a moment and says, I, I, you know, I need a moment. I don't like that. It's horrible. The church should be a place of refuge, should it not? It should be a place where you can come in here truth, and you can be surrounded by genuine people. Not farces like that. It's horrible. And especially someone like a Carl Lentz who absolutely took, took advantage of a number of women and other things that he did. Horrible. So this upsets me. It, it, partly it upsets me just in the natural. It should upset any man. I mean, if you're a true man, it should upset any man. It should surely upset any father, particularly any father that has daughters. It should upset any husband who has a wife. It should upset any grandparent that has, you know, a granddaughter. When you see something like that, that happens. In part, because the ministry itself was not truly built around holiness. And even... um, well, he really wasn't the founder of Hillsong, but he took over from his dad. And essentially, they show where he came to the States to sort of learn the techniques of the prosperity perversion. And then he learned the techniques of how music can be used to manipulate. And hence, they created the Hillsong brand. Um, horrible. And why do these things happen in environments like that? Because they're not serious about holiness. You say, wait a minute, hold on a second. I know some Bible-believing preachers and Bible-believing churches 
or their pastors has, have failed as well. And I've t- referenced to my students a number of times, one preacher that it, at one point in time was even not on our staff, but have visited our campus a number of times, an excellent orator, excellent orator, but not striving for piety. And then it became evident. But that's a, and I've told my students before, boy, that is, that's a scary moment. Because if you were to right now, if you were to change his voice, you know, just do something with the, uh, with the MP3 or whatever, change it. And if you were to listen to it, you say, wow, this guy is on fire for the things of the Lord. But then you realize his life was a farce. Yeah. And would have talked about some of the things I talk about. And so for my own soul, it's also for my own soul, it's something I have to be careful of myself. And I've even said to students and to my family, to others that I know in places that I preach, I don't want to be another statistic. And a part of the way that you can avoid being another statistic is to realize at times, here are the areas of my life that you'd better pay attention to that. Because that area that you see, that those images, it's way back here in the starting blocks. Don't look back to those starting blocks. Yeah, it's quite serious. There's a need for it. It's obvious. What about the reclaiming of piety? Uh, I would say the reclaiming of piety is just, it's another battle that we find ourselves in the midst of in the church. It is. Um, and we can go to the next, whatever the, is there. yep. Uh, the church has lost its moorings. When we think about moorings, its stability, its guidance, uh, what it should be, how it should prioritize itself, what should it be known for. And so we must reclaim this. It was, you've heard Robert Murray McShane, his great quote, and he said this, It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. We sometimes will choose leaders based on their talents. Do we not do that? We look in the church and we say that person has, he's such a gifted individual. He has this skill set. And then we make them a leader as opposed to who is he? What is he like? And sometimes when it comes to people um, coming together, single people, and they're looking for that spouse for their life. In Providence, it's so interesting how Providence works. I, um, in my fellowship group, I had noticed uh, two people that were like sitting next to one another quite often. And I was about to talk with them about that. Uh, not that it's a problem necessarily, uh, but I, I said, okay, I'm noticing that. So I walked outside because they were working on this, and I saw them together. Now hands are hell. Wow. And I went over and said, yes, I've been taking note of this. He said, well, you know, Pastor, we were going to talk to you, but you were gone, and you came back, and then you were gone, and you're back. And I said, but I'm back now for two weeks solid, so let's talk. Not that, not that I have a problem with it necessarily. And so they are, you know, and I know the, I know the one person. I don't know the other And so we'll have to have conversations about what are you looking for? Because even in those relationships, you can say, I'm looking for talent. I'm looking for these skills. And you're not looking for someone that's walking with the living God. 
And how much heartache have I seen over the years as a pastor because someone made a decision, and often the decision is made contrary to counsel, and they choose an individual because they have means, or they have talents, or they have looks, or they have connections, or they have personality. And I'm not saying that you, uh, you know, the person has to be dull to be godly. As a matter of fact, I would think the opposite. Dude, uh, you know, let's, I'll I'll stop. (laughs) Because now I'm about to give my like tips to get better guys speech here. Uh, <laughs> that's like another seminar. <laughs> like how to get it together so you can marry a godly woman. But anyway. Um, but so you marry based on personality and all these other things. And then when life hits you, where is all of that? It's godliness that's going to get you through. Do you agree with that? Do you, am I off base here? Am I off base at all? No, I don't think I am. No, I'm not. And so, this is important, but let's move ahead. The characteristics of piety. The characteristics of piety. And I'm going to give you five, and you see them listed here. Vision, love, passion, purity, and prayer. So let's talk about these five characteristics of piety. Number one, the necessity of vision. And what do I mean by vision? You need to understand it. Um, we can go to that next one. A vision of God fuels godliness. See, a vision of God. It motivates a passion in your life. Um, I remember, you know, now it's maybe 35 years ago or so, um, when I read The Valley of Vision, and in this, you can read the Valley of Vision, and you see in the Valley of Vision, wow, these guys are struggling. What's happening with them? What's their understanding of God? And then later on, I realized the reason at times they seem to be struggling because they had a vision of God. And when you have a correct vision of God, it gives you a perspective of your own life. You realize that my comparison is not um, any other person. My comparison is the living God. And if that's the case, woe is me. But we know it's not war as me because of Jesus Christ and his sufficient work on the cross. Amen? Amen. But we have to have a vision of God. Look with me at Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Favorite, one of my favorites. Um, 27 verse 4. And it says this. I've often gone to this. I meditate on it a great deal. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I should seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is his heart's desire. So we want to think about, look at the desire of David. What is his heart's desire in the midst of the difficulty he was facing? Here's the one thing that I want, to behold God, to meditate on him and his beauty. Pause for a moment, um, and this word behold, it means to, to, to think about in a concentrated way. The word can even mean to have a fixed gaze on something. And when he says the beauty of God, it's just I'm thinking about the excellencies of God. Let me think about Yahweh and who he is and his kindness and his greatness and his love and his mercy. And let me meditate on those things. Uh, If you want to grow in personal holiness and piety and godliness, you have to have meditation. 
Now we hear the word meditation, and there may be initially some alarm. Uh, because some people think if they hear meditation, what do they think? You can tell me. Just speak out loud. What, what do they think sometimes? What's that? Yeah, Buddhism or something like that. Eastern mysticism, right? They think, oh, they think yoga, right? I'm going to get in this yoga stance and meditate. Uh, unfortunate, uh, meditation is thoroughly biblical. Even if right now on your smartphone, if you just said Bible, and I just say do the Psalms, and just said put in the word meditate, the number of times that you're going to see it. Because the Psalm is, oh, I meditate and muse on your works, on your deeds, on your greatness. I meditate on your law. I meditate on your words. So the meditation is absolutely necessary. Um, it'd be Psalm 37. Psalm 37, the psalmist says, you know, and I feed on your faithfulness. And the idea is that I'm going to chew on it. I cultivate faithfulness. So meditation is absolutely necessary. But notice what he says. I want to behold, have a a fixed gaze is what it's communicating. Very strong idea to behold something. The beauty of God. And this this works out well that we're in this room. It looks... Um, let's pretend right now, here's the, here's the stage for the wedding. And um, everyone can, you've been to a wedding before. What happens, uh, you know, the fellows come in, everyone's still seated because no one really cares a great deal, right? Um, but what happens when the bride comes in? Someone tells me, tells me, tell me. <laughs> What's that? They all do what? And where do they look? They start in the back, do they not? So if she were coming in now, what would you do? Where would you look? You would look back there, would you not? And your eyes would do what? Follow her the whole way. And you hear comments, would you not? Comments like, oh, wow, she looks so wonderful. Um, You know, boy, I love how she did her hair. No, not from the guys, but from the gals. (laughs) You, You guys did hear that, right? Right? Boy, I love those colors in her. It's so wonderful. It compliments her so well. Right? That's what you would hear. All eyes are fixed on her what? Beauty. You would be an incredibly rude person if when the bride is coming down, which we do have to resist, you're looking at your, how many, the three people that liked your posts on Facebook. (laughs) No, you're fixed on it. The beauty of God. Then you have thoughts about God. And, and, and if you're going through difficult moments in life, as the psalmist was, if I, I want to get to that point where I can go to the temple and meditate on God. And when I can meditate on God, it puts everything in perspective. It does. Because I think about his greatness and how he shines over it all. Um, the same would be true. Say, for instance, if we were to look at Colossians. Chapter 3. Look at Colossians 3. Noting my time back there. Colossians 3. Wonderful text. I reference it often. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. 
So fixed on Christ. Look above. Notice what he says. Set your mind. Focus your thoughts. Focus your desires is what he is saying. So Christ here is the motivating factor. In in context, he's saying the things that these teachers are telling you about festivals and the Sabbath and asceticism. No, those things really are not should not be your focus. It should be Christ and his grace. Look above. But what's interesting about the book of Colossians, Christ is that motivating factor. Uh, There are 95 verses, 95 verses in the book of Colossians. And there are 54 references to the person of Christ. So is Paul trying to create something here? He surely is. Who is Christ? Christ who is preeminent. Christ who is first. Make sure that you look to him. And what's interesting, if you were to look at those 54 verses from chapter 1, 1 into 3, 4, 46 of those verses occur there. Think about Christ and who he is. This is also true if we were to consider Acts chapter 7. Turn there briefly. Acts 7. Stephen had a vision of God. And it led to an act, or we can even say acts of piety, because his proper view of God and understanding of God gives birth to it. And we know what happened. I'll go through it briefly. Um, Acts 7. And we'll keep going. Starting in 54. They were cut to the quick. Uh, but being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently. See, there is that sense, gazing. And notice he says he gazed intently into heaven. And what did he see? What did Stephen see? The glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, in contrast, he has this wonderful vision, but they, because of the hardness of their heart, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. They drove him out of the city and they were stoning him. They put their robes at the feet of Saul, 59. They went on stoning him and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, And here's the act of piety. Here's godliness. Here's holiness. Do not hold this sin against them. Um, He is really just following his Savior, isn't he? And what did Jesus Christ say on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But it's spurred on because of a vision of God. How about this number two? The necessity of love. Number two is the necessity of love. So, and it means a love of God and a love of people. We can go to that next one. The necessity of love of God and people. We cannot say that we're growing in personal holiness if we don't have a love of God and a love of his people. Here are the two great commandments. Uh, Romans tells us when we love our neighbor, we're fulfilling the royal law. But, If we're going to have a love for God, it means that we must have a communion with God. So now I want to lean on John Owen for for a bit and John Owen in his classic communion with God. And let's kind of synthesize Owen's thoughts, okay? 
Number one, when he talked about communion with God, he meant this. Communion with God is a relationship of mutual interchange between God and man. Now notice he says mutual interchange. So I seek the Lord and the Lord ministers to me through his word and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is an exchange between me and the living God. And this is unfortunate. What we must do is this. Think for a moment. Who is God? The greatness of God. And if we were to meditate on one aspect of God, even now, and just the reality that we can engage with the living God is something that should surely motivate us, that we have the opportunity to do that. Second, communion with God is a relationship in which the initiative and power are with God. He infuses us to commune with him, but yet we seek him for that power. Number three is this. Commune with God is a relationship in which Christians receive love from and respond in love to all persons of the Trinity. He loves us, and then we love him. The greatest commandment, we can love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and our soul. It is evident that he loves us, and now we strive in our life to love God in return. Number four, communion with God is a relation of active, forward-looking friendship between God and man. So what Owen means by this, active, it is engaging. It cannot be dormant. We do not sit on our our present state. Uh, It's Thessalonians 4, we're excelling all the more. We're trying to be better from where we are in this present state. Uh, It's what I said before about the Puritans and and then writing in the Valley of Vision. The, The reason they would write in such a way is because they had an understanding of God. And that understanding of God puts life in perspective and it motivates us to strive for more. But the idea that a friendship with God. And Jesus Christ said, I call you friends. What a great relationship we have. He is both master. He is Lord. He is our commander, if you will. He is our savior, but he is also our friend. But we don't treat him in a way that is um, irreverent. Irreverent. Certain irreverent preachers and certain movements talked about talk about speaking with God as if he's their buddy. No, not buddy. I don't like that. But he is a friend that I can go to that sticks closer than a brother. I can put before him my every need. It's what the writer of Hebrews says, we can come before the throne of grace in time of need. Lord, this is where I find myself. Here is my reality. And this is what we see in the psalmist. Let us not come with this pretense. I'm doubting right now. Help my unbelief. Lord, where are you right now? And as the psalmist would say at times, says, how long, O Lord? Here is my reality. But then we go before the Lord as a friend, as a savior. Number five, communion with God in Christ is enjoyed in a special way at the Lord's table. And we talked about before, religious experience. At the Lord's table, we reflect on Christ. And if we've heard, you know, a word from Uh, whomever that may be preaching and he's talking about the cross and then we sing songs to the Lord and we come to the table and we reflect on his death, that should be a sober moment. Um, McShane also said this, and I quote, he says, rose early 
to seek God and found him whom my soul loves. Who would not rise early to meet such company? I love that quote. We all have appointments, do we not? And um, sometimes those appointments start early. And I would encourage you to make an early appointment with the Lord. And this is what he said. Who would not rise early to meet such company as this? If I can engage with the living God. So we say uh, growing in holiness, godliness, piety means that we commune with the living God. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. Maybe your schedule is such that, you know, it's not the best time in the morning. But you have to find a time that's not, and I'll just put it plainly, that is not leftover time. Yeah. I found myself, one of the classes that I teach, and I'll teach it again this semester, is on prayer itself. And I found that although these men are lovers of God that come here to the Master's Seminary, they're serious about the things of God, many in the class will struggle with prayer. Many will. And how many times have they written me, pray for me, prof, not I feel ashamed. I haven't prayed the way that I should. I'm so busy with papers. I'm so busy with class. I'm so busy with work. And I have them a certain amount of time. They must pray for the class. And by the end of it, I see these men grow. And they realize, oh, I can do this. What have I been missing out on? And students will say who took the class at the end of their career, why didn't I take this at the beginning? I should have taken this class at the beginning of of my seminary career so that I can develop these habits. Develop those habits to be with the Lord. Commune with him. What about the necessity of passion? Number three, the necessity of passion. And I'm just going to briefly state it. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. And by, by passion, I mean that when we realize what we were before, Christ has saved us. Now this love of Christ controls us. This should motivate us. And this is why good theology is so helpful. This is why people that don't teach on total depravity, this is why people that don't teach on the very nature of sin cannot be truly motivated. Like a a Joel Osteen in Osteenism. You're not going to hear about sin and and man's fallenness. You're not going to hear about man's shortcomings. Because in his own words, he wants to make sure that people walk away feeling better about themselves and positive. The best, and I don't mind the word feeling, when I can walk away realizing, this is amazing that this Savior would die for me. And even some of the things that I may have thought on my way here are distractions that I may have had. Isn't it amazing that he forgives me? Yeah. But that's all in the context of our sin, is it not? Um, here's number four. The necessity of purity. The necessity of purity. Now, you may notice this is number four because some people think, well, right away when we think about holiness, God, and his piety, shouldn't it have started with purity? Isn't that the whole of it? And I'm saying to you, it is not. Because some people approach it, they just think avoidance, and that's not personal godliness or purity or piety. But there is a necessity of purity. It's obvious. A distinguishing mark, I think, of any individual is that they walk differently, circumspectly, 
with the sense that there are others around me who are observing me. i give you an illustration. I travel a bit on the road, maybe twice a month, somewhere. And um, I was had landed, um, I was on a flight, a return flight, actually from D.C., and I'm doing some work. And a woman passed by me in the aisle, and she turned around. She said, are you Carl Hargrove? And I thought, I'm a nobody. What is, what is this? What's happening here? And she said, I, I, I passed by, and I thought I'd seen you before. Then I passed by you again, and I saw you, like, doing some things with, I think I was studying something. I had the Hebrew open along with, I think it was First Kings. And she said, I looked, and I said, well, there's something different about what he's studying there. And she said, she asked me that. And I said, yeah, I'm studying, um, you know, about this passage, whatever it was. And, and we chatted for a bit, and she went away and went back to her seat. Now, why am I telling you that story? People observing you. She saw my screen. She was noticing what I was looking at. Yeah. And what if it had been? She's walking down the aisle. I've seen that guy before somewhere. And she walks down the aisle and she looks over and I have something highly inappropriate. Oh, he's one of them. Oh, okay. And that was such a great lesson for me. You just never know who's observing you. Do you agree with that? So purity is necessary. It is. That we strive for it. Some of us came to the Lord later in life. And we have some things in our archives that by God's grace, they've been pushed far, far back. Far back. And you really have to go through the record books to find them. And some of us, they're, they're maybe up here somewhere. You need to push them further back in your mind. And how do you do that? By communion and striving and prayer, the reading of God's word, congregational experiences in worship, meditation on God's word. And we can, and this is a fascinating thing, how both the mind works and how the sinful flesh works. You can, if you so desire, Easily access those things if you wanted to. By God's grace, there's some things I've like absolutely forgotten. And I'm so thankful. It's like I've forgotten them. But if I were to hear a song, I'm like, okay, let's mute that. Or if I were to go visit family in Florida and I would see some friends and they'd say, oh, Carl, you remember when? Yes, I remember, but I choose not to. So we strive for purity. And this is why your word is truth. What does it say again? Sanctify them in truth. Purity is necessary. Let me give you some pointers on purity or some thoughts on it to fill it out a little bit more. Purity in thought and action. So you must win the battle of the mind. Win the battle of the mind. And there's a book, right now I forget the author, and it's actually called that, um, The Battle for the Mind. Um, Is that Saxon? Yeah, Saxon. Get the book, very helpful, um, The Battle for the Mind. Um, Purity and entertainment. Uh, Be careful that you don't make choices that contradict your public convictions. But yet, privately in your entertainment, it's something very different. And sometimes on the issue of entertainment, it's not that it's inappropriate necessarily the content but it's time, the time that it takes to watch certain things. 
It really is. The time it takes. I don't have time. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, see a part of purity and holiness and piety and godliness is also I have to be a steward of my time. I have but so much of it here. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Uh, do not, he says, be, be wise and not unwise, making the most of your time, knowing that the days are evil. There's certain, I just, I don't have the time for it. And some, like, assume with me, well, because I have a little bit of an athletic background, they say, well, did you see, you know, the football game today? No, I didn't. I don't have time. Did you see the playoffs? No, I didn't. I don't have time. Now look at me sort of strangely. Like, hmm, what happened? Were you traumatized when you played or something? No, I gave my time then. I don't have time for it now. And I'll tell them, yeah, maybe when it comes to the NFC playoff, if, if the team that makes it there plays good defense and they hit people hard, I may watch it then. But other than that, uh, <laughs> I don't have time for it. I don't. So entertainment. Number, here's another thought. Purity in relationships with the opposite sex. You have to maintain dignified and appropriate relationships, guidelines. There's certain things that I don't do. No, I won't counsel with you. No, I won't meet you there. No, we won't have that conversation on the phone. No. No. You have to maintain those relationships. What about purity in speech? Making sure that your words are seasoned with salt, the salt of God's grace. What is my speech? That's holiness. That's godliness. That's piety. What about purity in ministry aspirations? You say, ministry aspirations? What do you mean by that? Okay, God, I want you to use me to the glory of God. And whatever way you use me, I'm willing to serve you. Here's number five, our last one, the necessity of prayer. Um, Quote, McShane says, Oh, believing brethren, what an instrument is this which God hath put into our hands. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. G. Campbell Morgan said this, If men faint, it is because they have ceased to pray. If men do not pray, they faint. Yeah. We have to be a praying people. And the reasons that we don't pray, I wish I could get into them all, but if we're not a person that's engaged with communication with God, We can't grow in holiness. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to give you some questions. Let's skip ahead to um, the heading is like um, questions that will gauge your piety. One more, I think. Ah, the discipline of fasting. I wish we don't do that anymore. I did do two messages and anchored on that. If you want to learn more about it, you can just find it on the website. The next one. Okay, here's some questions for you that will help you gauge your piety, holiness. Number one is this. How hungry are you for God's presence? Um, Psalm 16, in your presence is a fullness of joy. It's Psalm 43. It's this longing and hungering for the living God. It's, it's the panting for God and who he is. So we must ask ourselves that question. If I want to grow in piety and godliness and holiness, am I hungry for his presence? Number two is this. How appalled am I of my personal sin? Is it appalling to me? Or is it like the bent of society that it wants to appease the conscience of men? Number three, 
How satisfied am I in the scope of my ministry? That is, Lord, I'm content with what you've given me to do. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Timothy 6. I'm content with this, and I'm going to serve you to the glory of God. Number four, how open am I to correction? You say, if I want to grow in these areas, is there someone in your life who can correct you? Uh, Of course, the Word of God does that. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Proverbs 27, 5, and 6, you have to have a friend that can be closer than a brother, if you will. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have someone in your life that can play that role? Number five, how kind am I to other people? Just in a practical standpoint, we're supposed to grow in kindness as we looked earlier. First, Second Peter 1, 7, 2 Timothy 2, 24. It is the kindness of God that appeared through Christ, Titus 3, 4. Am I growing in kindness to people? Number six, how patient am I when I'm wronged? You see, if I'm growing in holiness and piety and godliness, but I'm pretty impatient, that's just who I am. But it's not what you should be. We're all in a process, are we not? And maybe in that area you need to grow further. Uh, it's Second Timothy two twenty four. Patient when wrong. It's it's Ephesians four thirty two. It's Colossians three that we forgive just as He has forgiven us. Number seven. How different are my assessments from those who know me? And what am I saying here? You make a self assessment. And on a scale of 1 to 10, you come out as a 9.98. The people around you say you're coming in at about a 6.2 at best. So you assess yourself. You need to have someone around you who can make an assessment of your life and give you an objective opinion of your present state and what they see as your direction. Now, that could be a, a sensitive meeting, we'll call it. It could be a sensitive meeting, but nonetheless, one that's going to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Um, Here is number eight. Do I live in such a way that some aspect of my life is quotable? Some aspect of my life is quotable. Now, initially, someone may hear that and say, well, I'm not concerned about being quoted. or I'm not concerned that anyone write about my life. But yet, 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, Chapter 3, Paul said, follow us and follow our example. Look at the pattern that you see in us. And what do I mean by a quotable life? That someone could say some aspect of your life, I want to follow that. Something they've said is worth quoting. How they've lived is worth emulating. And that should be true of us all. There's no arrogance in that necessarily. You should want to live your life in such a way that others would want to follow you. How many of you have children in this room? Great. Do you not want your kids to follow you? As a kid, they're going to, you know, especially when they're young, they're going to be like daddy, be like mommy. They're going to put on dad's shoes. They're going to try to put on dad's hat. They're going to want to put on, like, do their hair like mom, perhaps. And that's cute. But later in life, it means that you want those kids to follow you in some measure. Now, there may be times, because if you're not walking with the Lord, perhaps you have to say, you know what, I'm sorry. My example in that stage in my life was unacceptable. Don't follow it. But we're striving for it. And I've said this a number of times, and it seems like occasions like this, it's it's appropriate to say it. Um, I have 
and I'll just state it again. You may have even heard it from me before, but I think it's worthy of it. Um, you have been to a memorial service, and I've been to some services, and the people are talking about the individual and their life, and I'm wondering, who are they talking about? I never saw that. And I've said to people, don't have your loved ones lie about you. They can speak truthfully about your life and how you lived. It was a godly life. It was a life worthy of emulation. I'll leave you one thought, again, by McShane. He says this, and I love it. The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. That's how we should live our life. You make Christianity believable as opposed to, I have doubts about it. It's a stumbling block to me. Your life is one of holiness and piety and godliness. All right? Um, Let me pray. I'll stay behind if you have some questions. Went a little bit longer than I thought. Uh, If you have any questions, come up to me. We can chat about them. Or any other time you see me around campus, uh, shoot me an email. Just see Hargrove at gracechurch.org. Lord, we are thankful for these words you've given us. Um, They challenge us to be the people you want us to be. Thank you that we are saints in your eyes, and we're becoming saints, and we will be saints in heaven. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.